When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. I'm Becky Parker Geist and I'm your host. Audiobook Connection is your place to learn about the audiobook creative process in discussions between the authors, narrators, producers, and post-production teams that bring them all together, as well as guests who have listened to the audiobooks and have questions for the creative teams. This podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. I'm excited to have with me today Jackie Burnett. She is the author of her memoir entitled Life's Not Yoga, or Is It? She is an adventurer, both in journeys of the spirit and also in the world of financial strategy. Raised in South Africa, she's qualified in business studies, which has enabled her to help numerous businesses achieve their strategic and financial goals. Inspired by her discoveries on her life journey, Jackie created the Dare to Be Love platform, which quickly attracted an audience of over 43,000 followers and who are also seeking answers on how to deal with life's challenges and trauma. As an impassioned student of life, Jackie continues to practice and promote living a spirit-led life of courage, kindness, compassion, and love. Jackie, thank you so much for being with me today. Hi, Becky. It's wonderful to see you today, and thanks for making this time. I'm excited for this conversation. Well, I thought maybe we would just start right off at the top with the (laughs) title. You call your memoir, Life's Not Yoga, and Yet, you know, in the book, you mark yoga as a valuable practice in your life. So, well, I thought maybe we would just start right off at the top with the title. You call your memoir, Life's Not Yoga, and yet in the book, you mark yoga as a valuable practice in your life. So tell us a little more about why the book is called Life's Not Yoga. Becky, I confess that my memoir had many titles, but for many years it was Dare to Ask um, around my Dare to Be Love platform. And the reason why I came with Life's Not Yoga, not only because it creates this conversation, Mm -hmm. everybody wants to know why this title Life's Not Yoga or is it? Let's just go one step back where Aurobindo said all life is yoga. And for those of us in the Western world who practice yoga, I confess that many of us are doing it for an ego narrative because we think it has something to do with the body. But quickly we learn that yoga is really about watching our processes, our thought processes, as we breathe into our movement with the body. So it really is, as most of us know, it's meditation and movement. But life is not meditation. Life throws us curveballs. So no different to, you know, when you're in a pose um, at yoga And you're looking at yourself in the pose, whether you're feeling uncomfortable or whether you have a conversation about whether you're doing it right or not, or whether you're comparing yourself to someone. Well, that's life. It's what we do. But yoga teaches us to go to breath, just breathe. And despite the chaos and the trauma, is to be at one with what is and to be at one with who we are in the physical body 
who we are in our mind and who we are in our soul. And that comes from the connection with spirit. So whilst my memoir is a crunchy tell-all narrative, as you well know, having read the book, yes. <laughs> it deals with my trauma and and overcoming my trauma and not just yoga on the mat. It's it's about one's approach to life, as Victor Frankl said, knowing that we have a choice. And so it's a play on all of the, that kind of thinking. Yeah. You know, the philosophical, the theological, the mystical and the psychological thinking of how we deal with life. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a it's a great title. It really draws us in. I mean, it certainly did me. You know, it's like, oh, what, where are we going with that? You know, even just that title is a, is a great catch. So Thank you. well done on that. I know that your online writing has been around for a few years and has quickly attracted quite a significant following. Tell us, why did you publish a memoir as opposed to a self-help book? You know, Becky, I at a very young age, and I talk about that for a moment in the book about I always thought I would be an author in my teens. Mm -hmm. And as a result of my trauma, I disconnected from what I would call my true self, the person that I wanted to be in the world. And so my journey with writing was one that started at a very young age. And when I decided, I think it was in 2002, that I knew that I was going to write and that I knew I was going to write in the public domain, even though, you know, I was here working in the world of finance, was a finance strategist. What was interesting for me was having to go back to finding myself in that process and, you know, the process of rediscovery. And I always thought originally that I was writing a tell-all story about the shame story that I had with my father. And then I quickly realized that that was the voice of victim. And it's not how I wanted my story to be told, which saw me unraveling the side of myself, which is about the self-inquiry process. Before we can go to self-help, we need to go through self-inquiry to look at the root of our belief systems. And so I started writing online about my discoveries, about my life as a student of life, and sharing that with readers. And that very quickly, as I say, grew to quite a significant following um, via my blog and via Facebook. And so there was this interplay all along about do I write a memoir or do I write a book about self-inquiry to help people on their self-help or self-love process. And um, after talking to a lot of, you know, industry specialists, they felt that the right way to go is if you want to talk about this work, let the people know who you are. Right. And right. that wasn't very easy because I had to go back through many layers and actually look at myself and my own damage I was causing to myself as a result of holding on to the, the belief system of what it meant to be a victim or a survivor. And through the lens of, of finding myself as a thriver, so this memoir unfolded and so the rest of my work where I talk about what it means to heal and write online and, and book two, which I'm working on to help people through their own self-healing process is how the memoir came out first was, this is me, warts and all. Right. And this is me and my mess. And, you know, some people say that it was very brave. Sometimes I think maybe a bit stupid, but no. For me, it's very important that we, we be fully ourselves in front of everyone and not hide behind the masks and the ego projections or even false humility. Yeah. So that's why the memoir was first. This is me. And yeah. this is why I'm comfortable to share what I believe is being fed to me to share with the world in terms of this process by first sharing with the readers, this is me and how I got you. Yeah. I think that it makes sense to me that you would have a large following and quickly, you know, when people are willing to be vulnerable, to share their truth, mm -hmm. that is not that, you know, hidden behind that mask. Mm -hmm. And I know certainly, you know, I would say probably most of us, you know, have that mm -hmm. concern, worry, fear about 
taking that chance of, you know, letting mm. people see us who we really are, you know, what mm. we've been through and not fearing that we're going to be judged in some negative way. So I think that mm. that transparency, that vulnerability is, in fact, a great strength. And so I want to thank, thank you. you on behalf of your many <laughs> followers for being who you truly are uh, and being willing to share that with everyone. Can I can I just say, Becky, it remains a, a challenging journey. It's not something to be our authentic selves is not easy because we do live in a world at the moment with such a negative, unkind narrative, which is around shame, guilt and blame. And I get some very harsh critics out there who have very nasty things to say to me. But what I do is, and this is what the work is about. For every one critic I have, I have 99 people who are enthusiastic about what I'm doing, who will support what I'm doing, who are feeling inspired through the, as a result of the way I've shared as to how they're earning their own story. And it's what do we focus on? We have a choice of, choice of our response. I can feel upset about those people. If they're not yet in a place to be kind, despite their feelings, I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to get caught up in that. And it hasn't been easy. Trust me, as I'm you sure. see in my book, I was, <laughs> I was capable of being very mean and very judgmental myself. And I catch myself doing it every day. But it's the courage to look within, notice that I'm capable of being as mean as that person and focus on the 99. I think that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for sharing that because it's, it's yeah. good to keep it all in mind, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's uh, the only way I can remain my authentic self. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So in the first part of your book, you talk about your experiences with suicide ideation. Mm. What would you like to say to your younger self? If you could speak to your younger self, wow. what would you say to yourself as you were going through that? You know, I talk a lot in my work about the fact that we are all born pure. We are all born from the essence of love. And I use the word love interchangeably with universe, universal wisdom. You know, whether you want to go to the theologies that will talk about it as God, the psychologies that will talk about it as universal wisdom, or, you know, the mystics or the philosophies, whatever, you know, knowing that there's something more powerful out there. And we are born to that. And I talk very much about uh, a lot in, in my book as to what that conversation meant for me as a child mm -hmm. and how I got to this place where I experienced a miracle of a physical healing. And shortly after that, I imploded because disconnecting with the spirit of who we are is how we unravel into the ego narrative of fear, unkindness, judgment, look at me, look at me, or whether we're doing it, you know, in an ego vanity or false humility of saying, oh, you know, I did this very kind thing, look at me. And right. So it's my human journey with that. So what I'd love to say to my younger self, it's okay. And your spirit is still inside you and you can reconnect. But I'm, I'm grateful actually that I went through all of this trauma because I see that we're living in a world where we are in this chaotic narrative. And had I not fallen out of it to become caught up in my ego, whether it be, you know, you know, being an egotist or in false humility, getting caught up in it because it was in falling over myself. And in learning that I was in my own way, in my mind, body, and soul, that I had this deep thing inside me to go and reconnect. It was always there with me. Most of us are disconnecting already at the age of two as a result of our parental and societal narrative right. with the no narrative or forcing our belief systems. So, you know what? 15, 16-year-old Jackie, I'm here now. I'm inside you. And I'm very much a part of this journey. So... I don't know that I can say anything back to that old Jackie other than, hello, yeah, you are, and it's cool to have you back. <laughs> Sounds like a very forgiving attitude towards your younger self, which is beautiful. 
it's a a very important topic in my work in terms of what forgiveness is because forgiveness if we're forgiving the other we're forgiving from an ego narrative you are Mm. wrong and i'm right Mm. whereas for me forgiveness is just total acceptance and accepting the story as it is so i do look at forgiveness from a different lens to some i guess in terms of how people have had that conversation with me Mm -hmm. but certainly yeah compassion and acceptance for my younger self and don't don't get me wrong even compassion for my 40 year old self (laughs) (laughs) and my 30 year old self and my 20 year old (laughs) right yes yes indeed (laughs) that's great a lot of them (laughs) yeah yeah in your book one of the shining lights in your life is your grandmother can you tell us a little bit more about what she taught you that relates to this journey and you know the things that you'd like to share about that i think like why i probably identified with my grandmother more than anyone else is that she was very direct and for me honesty has always been such an important thing and part of me falling over was just because i wasn't being honest with people and i wasn't being honest with myself as to who i am So there was something about my grandmother. Oh man, she could throw out some punches, but it was her honest perspective on how she was viewing something. And I've always admired honesty. I do realize that through my journey, it's unkindness. She was never unkind, even if she was direct. And that's what I love about my two best friends is that I can go to them. And sometimes it feels like a body blow when I ask them to be honest with me. In fact, I was up at five o'clock this morning. I woke up and was chatting to Amanda who lives in Boulder, Colorado, And man, that girl gave me a punch I didn't really want. (laughs) But I knew that was in me. And that's why I took it to her because I had the confidence for her to mirror it back. And it's in that courage that I found where I can be my authentic messy self and I could put my messy thoughts in front of her and she could mirror them back to me so that I could go within and see kindness or love as I refer to it again. Yeah. So that's why why I think I identify with my grandmother is her courage to be that direct. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. Getting your memoir into audio can be a delicate process, best treated with a nurturing and supportive approach. Many authors assume that when a memoir is recorded, it needs to be in the author's voice. And while sometimes that is best, it is not always the best option. At Pro Audio Voices, we'll work through that decision with you and support you in the production process whichever way you choose. If you decide to narrate, we set you up for success with a range of options, from having an audio engineer and director on the line for every recording session to getting you properly set up for recording on your own. If we hire a professional narrator, we'll make sure the voice is the right fit for you and your memoir. At Pro Audio Voices, your story is important to us. Let's inspire the world together. I want to take a sort of almost a side path, but really talking more about your family relationships. And that is early on when we were in the casting process for the audiobook edition of your book. <laughs> You shared how important it was to find a narrator who could do the voices of your parents justice. So I would love to hear more about what was important to you about that and then how you felt that turned out. So what I realized is when we read, we stroke so much of our own voices onto the characters. And we all know that. 
And we don't realize that we necessarily get caught up in that at a time. So how often have we not read a book? And then we see the movie and they say, the book did not live up to my expectations. <laughs> <laughs> so whilst in the very end of the book, I have a, my acknowledgements at the end, I talked to the journey a little bit about with my mother and my father, which, you know, my father and I never healed the combined wound. My second, my third book, actually, I'd love to write the book about my mother's voice. So what was important for me is a lot of people might have get angry with my mother at times because they felt my mother was absent and not available for me. Well, it was my mother who herself apologized for that one day mm. and in seeing herself that she could say that. And so I didn't want her to come across as just the victim. I wanted her to come across as this gentle person who was doing the best she could. Likewise, my father, it's very easy. Some people read the between the lines that my father was quite creepy. My father was messy up. Definitely. My father, according to my mother and I, when we looked at it later, feared that he might have suffered from something bipolar. Whatever our opinion or perspective was, yes, he had quite an unkind, aggressive narrative. He was easily triggered. He was particularly unkind when he drank. I you know, would have described him as a binge drinker based on his behavior. But I've seen myself being unkind when I'm triggered. I've seen myself, you know, maybe not necessarily being myself had I had, I'm not really a drinker, but when I've had a drink, and so I wanted him to be, I wanted people to feel, you know, because I talk about the fact that I loved him and I didn't want him to be creepy. I just wanted him to be as I would maybe feel about him at the time, that I didn't like him much, that I didn't, that he wasn't resonating or landing with me. And I wanted that feeling to come through. And so that's why it was very important yeah. for me. And I know, you know, and, and even when I listened to some of the auditions, because I made them do readings, you know, I'd sit with the whole group and I gave it out to friends and said, Dad, you man, your dad sounds creepy. <laughs> you know, it's not how we remember him. Well, he yeah. wasn't creepy. He was just messed up and confused and, and, and did some stupid yeah. things. So, yeah, that was important for me for yeah. those reasons. I think that uh, as I've... Uh I have a mentor who has said, you know, how often do we get up in the morning and we decide, oh, I'm going to be my less than my best self today. You know, we're all just like <laughs> doing the best that we can in each moment. Yeah. You know, and I find that mm. it sounds, you know, similar to what you're you're expressing there. I had an amazing experience. Oh, Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you when I was studying in San Francisco. And I was given a book to read. And in that book, it suggested when you wake up in the morning, can you notice your first thought? Well, oh my word, you have no idea how hard that is. Because you don't realize by the time you think, what am I thinking? You're already on, you know, we have 60,000 thoughts a day. You're probably on thought right. 1,000. And I write a poem about, I believe for myself, the first time I caught that thought, that first thought was you know, very much an awakened moment for me. And in realizing what that thought is, we don't realize how much of that energy we carry into a day based on those first thoughts. It might have come from a dream that upset us, could have come from a dream that made us angry in our subconscious, or it could have come from something that was pleasurable. So we jump out of bed with a good mood, or we don't even realize we carry a bad mood right. into the day. And so I try to look for that first thought. And once I'm aware that I have these thoughts, I do what is called a prayer for love. I consciously go and I ask for the wisdom, grace, and courage for my mind to be filled with loving thoughts for self and all others. And then I go to my soul in terms, I ask for the wisdom, grace, and courage for my soul to speak kind, loving words for self and all others. I go to the body of my being and I ask for the wisdom and grace and courage for my behaviors to be loving and kind for self and all others. And then I, you know, go to the spirit of who I am and I ask for the wisdom and grace and courage for everything that I believe in the day to be infused with love. 
that everything I think, say, and do can manifest love and the miracle. And then I bow out to the, the student and teacher in me and the student and teacher in every other human being. And Becky, I still mess it up a hundred <laughs> times a day. <laughs> uh, that suggests that you're human. <laughs> I still sometimes say things exactly. And I was like, why did you say that, Jackie? That was so unkind. Or I think things or yeah. I write things when, and as I unpack, unpack my own psychic bomb. Yeah. But it's a fascinating yes. process. And it certainly helped me. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. And I want to sort of coming back to the audiobook piece. What was that like Mm. for you to hear your story told by someone else in the voice of Sierra as she narrated it? (laughs) Well, as you know, I, I went through many companies before I got to your company. And it was a lot harder than I thought, particularly as it's a memoir. I think even if you're writing fiction, you have a voice in your head when you're writing that. But writing nonfiction and needing to find someone who I believe resonated with me. And I didn't do that on my own. I did that with, you know, I had my own feelings towards it. And then I, I listened to, you know, friends and people on my team from marketing to social media. And I gave it to all of these people. And, you know, it was a matter of we we very quickly identified you know, two voices that made sense to us. And then we went through it again and again. And as you know, we went for second round um, auditions on the back of that and did another reading. And there was just something about Sierra that made sense to me. And as you know, that, you know, the audiobook's been a little delayed due to circumstances in her life. And it was wonderful for me to be able to know that I made that decision from the heart and to be able to support her and your company as we went through that process and not once again, you know, just push because I want the audio book out. So it was a very deep, very real experience for me and an honor to have her reading and your team working yeah, on it thank with you. me. Felt very supported. Yeah. 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 And as you listened to the story, did you have that experience of either reliving it or hearing it as if it was someone else's story what was that like for you she took the brief so well in terms of everything that we gave her and all the hard work that you know yourself and your team did and I always felt that she was me I always felt that she was inside me and I felt that she was making the effort to do that and I remember there was a time where everybody said Jackie please read the audiobook please read the audiobook and I kept saying there's no ways that I can do these characters. There's no ways I can do this justice. And all I can say is it's her training as an actress, as well as everybody else that auditioned. I, I can feel an experience. And so it's it, to me, it was such a privilege to have her working on this project and know that she had you know my support and your support. So yes, she always felt like me and she had me crying Beautiful. for me. You know, the, oh, <laughs> Sierra, you did that too well. <laughs> and I just, myself and come back so yeah I think she did a good job of being Jackie and I had someone else you know um, listen to it with me you know in terms of our first round of editing and you know so it wasn't just my perspective yeah I was going to ask was it did you find it hard to listen to your story or sort of taking it from the level of just you know listening to it in someone else's voice but actually to hear your story told interesting every time I've and I've read this manuscript a hundred times through editing through after it was published through working with editors listening it to the audiobook and every time I cried again at different spots so okay I can't necessarily say it was hard it was a mm-hmm. privilege I was grateful that I had worked so hard in terms of the storytelling I was grateful that I had surrounded myself with very competent people through my writing process as I have with your company and with someone who's as skilled as Sierra 
So there were moments that were very hard and there were moments that were very joyful. And there was something about the it, about, about the listening that that hoped my mom and dad were listening, uh-huh. you know. And I sort of like invited them along and I said, look, look, look how, look how, what an amazing job we've done at bringing our message to the world in terms of healing because I, I don't believe we die. I believe we live on. And so my healing process with my dad and my mom continues today and into, you know, whatever form they come back in or don't come back. It's, it's, a, it's an ongoing process because the spirit yeah, never dies. Yeah. Coming into the more about the content. So you talk publicly about recurring PTSD and its effect on mental mm-hmm. and physical health. So your memoir shares your multiple traumas, mm-hmm. including nine near-death <laughs> experiences. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Can you share with us some yeah. of your healing journey beyond what you share in your memoir? Well, getting to the end of my memoir and realizing that I was so untethered and trying to figure out what it meant. So in some ways, the end of my memoir is the in, in some ways the beginning of my healing journey as an integrated individual. So whilst I was always going through healing process and healing modalities, I didn't know what it really meant to work on my body, on my mind, on my soul, and on my spirit. And now I try and spend the same amount of time on each of them because they, you know, all equally important. And so my healing journey after that, certainly what has been interesting for me, because at the end of my book, I'd had nine near-death experiences And last year, I was subject to another two significant situations with near death, which brought back my PTSD in a moment. And what was interesting for me was watching how I had to come back because when we are in a PTSD mode, we are not integrated. We are in the amygdala brain. It's like, you know, there's a snake, fight or flight. And when I operate from that space, I've made some terrible mistakes. And being integrated and, and working from a healthy state, integrated in those four parts, making sure that I know that my brain waves are acting in the back of my mind, bringing them back to alpha state so that I can work from the alpha mind in, you know, the, my alpha waves and getting into a space where I can sleep well and have my, you know, the theta waves sort of operating to be able to stay in the process of being integrated as human being is just been such an incredible experience. And my life's work now to help other people in terms of that, because we are working and we are First of all, we've, we've grown up in a time where we're educated to body and mind. We do so little work on the soul and spirit. And right now, we all think that we have the answer and we can all teach each other, whereas the teaching is really within. So my work is really not about the teaching. It's about showing or sharing with individuals my, my, my journey as a student of life and what it means to be integrated and then talking about that moment to moment as we you know, I had a fabulous teacher said, life is walking on fishes. As you walk on the fish and you stumble and fall and what you can do with that. So a lot of my healing has been as a result of the, the last nine years since we were, my book ends nine years ago, even though I've only recently published it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the aggressive shame, guilt and blame narrative being used in the world these days is driving division and war? And I do. And how do we deal with that? And, do you have you know, thoughts on it? Well, for me, it's if we don't operate from the spirit of who we are, we are operating at lower levels of, of, of being, and that is mind, body, and even mind, body, soul. And if we operate from that space, we are going to keep blaming anything that we don't want to deal with or blaming someone who might have injured us or hurt us or upset us. 
So, or we'll shame somebody or shame ourselves or feel our shame or, you know, even use a guilt narrative to bring about somebody else's behavior. So, I do believe that we are we are in an overstimulated world, an over-triggered world, and we're reacting too fast. And we are using, we are all using, you know, the guilt, shame, and blame narrative as our driving narrative to to influence other people. And I'm trying to my best as a result of what I believe I've been gifted through all of this trauma and my healing to share with people another way you know, in terms of bringing compassion and suffering. And there's so many incredible teachers out there at the moment and out there in the world who are, you know, saying we've got to go within. But the way that it's been given to me with my courses, I'll be launching online as of, you know, the the information that was fed to me in 2013 that I've written about over the last six years is what I'm excited to share in terms of a, a, a way that we can do it where we don't have to force our stories onto others to find our happiness and find happiness and peace within. And so therefore, you know, because as Gandhi says, you know, be the change you want the world to see. And in being the change, we can actually manifest and bring change in the world. Yeah. So this is a big part of Dare to Be Love platform, right? Mm. Yeah. Mm. So how did that... Power versus force. Yeah. 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 (laughs) How did the Dare to Be Love platform arise from the book? And and what does it even mean to be sort of hashtag Dare to Be Love? What does that mean? (laughs) so my subtitle as you know is finding love in the chaos of life for those of you that are wanting a romantic story i hate to say that that's not what this is about although all of that juice is in the book if you want to read it as a crunchy tell all fictional you know narrative you can because it's you know sort of written that way but for those of you that have read my book you'll know or, or listen to the book now you'll know that at the end the very last word that, you know, that lands with me is this aspect of what it means, of what love means and what it means to be loved. And it goes down to the simple thing. As a child, I was told God is love. And so my question was, what is love? And I go out into the world searching for love. And so love is the essence of being. Love is the essence of wisdom. Love is the essence of compassion. Love is the essence of universe. Love is the essence of God. And when we can be love, then we can be at peace with ourselves. And so manifest change in the world. So my dare to be love platform is how do you be mm-hmm. love? How do you be love? How do you operate from the spirit of self and be at one with what is, be at one with love, be at one with acceptance, be at one with life and manifest a different future and manifest a different moment, a different, you know, because if we can manifest the different present moment, we can manifest a different future. But if we stay in the chaos, if we stay in the crisis, if we stay in the noise, if we stay in the negative narrative, that is what we will keep, we will keep attracting towards ourselves. So all of these, the, you know, the teachings that are out there, whether it be the secret or A Course in Miracles, all of these things are, are, are fantastic material. And I think maybe the, the Course in Miracles is for me the best one in terms of how can you unpack your belief system? Because everything we are saying, as I'm saying this now to you now, I'm reinforcing it on the back of my belief system. But do I have the courage to look at that belief system and say, does it hold love? Right. And that's really how, through the the work that I do is, how do you look at a belief system and really question it from the deeply curious mind and from the courageous mind and say, is this embedded in love? Not goodness or kindness, because that can be an ego narrative as well. Look how good I am. Look how kind I am versus look at me, look at me. It, is it embedded in life? So you're not forcing any agenda. You're just holding right, space. Yeah. When you say that people are stuck in their beliefs, is this what you mean by that? Uh, you know, talk to us a little bit about 
your thoughts on how we can shift our beliefs as we recognize them in order to begin thriving? So going back to the importance of a year that we need to change our thoughts or we need to change the way we behave or we need to change our thinking processes. So one of the things that you know I go to is in order to really see, love, and accept ourselves, we have to be able to look at a belief and say, what is this What is this belief made up of? Why do I have this belief? Where did it even come from? So why I share you know, the early parts of my life is so that you can see belief systems that are being put to me to consider. Most of our belief systems come from our parents and our societal narrative and then reinforced and reinforced and reinforced until we make that thing real. And we will use it and keep manifesting and pulling things towards ourselves to reinforce that belief. So whether it be a faith-based belief or whether it be any belief that we have that we can't lose weight, we can lose weight, it will keep manifesting and we'll keep saying, I need to lose weight, I need to lose weight, I need to lose weight, as opposed to, I want to lose weight. What is my belief system around that? And until we can go and actually look at the belief system, so to look at a belief, you first got to say, this is my belief. What if it's not true? What are the alternatives? And we're too scared to actually take that belief because we're so busy holding on to it, no matter what it is. And certainly in mine, like it was a faith-based belief of this is the only way to love. This is the only way to God. And what I do in my book, I first unpack it and say, what if it's not true? What mm. else exists? And in that, I could find the options. And then I realized there wasn't just one option. There were hundreds <laughs> and hundreds and hundreds. And I love Louise Hay when she talks about washing dishes as to how many ways people believe is the only way to wash <laughs> dishes. But I first have to look at the belief and say, this is my tightly held belief to wash dishes. I put the dishes on the side. I run very hot water with soap. I have hot rinse water. I only wear gloves. And yeah. there are a hundred yeah, ways to do And so can you look at any other belief, particularly beliefs that aren't necessary in the physical very hard for us and you look at that belief and say what if it's not true i like that what if then look at the other hundreds and then you can pull in all of them and find something more power than a belief that is excluding others because a lot of our beliefs exclude others are judgmental unkind fear-based and we need to hold on to them and so we will exclude people and we will create wars Mm -hmm. in the world we will create political divides we will say we're united as a country and go to war with each other on color, on opinions, on things that have no value, but we hold into it so tightly because it's how we want to define and identify ourselves. And it's bigger than that to me when we can break open our belief. Yeah. I love that. Ask what if, what if it weren't true? That's, I love that. That's great. (laughs) What if this belief isn't true? And then can we consider all of the other beliefs that reinforce the same story? And the the key thing is, as long as our belief is infused with love and it's all inclusive and is not hurting anyone, then we are sitting with the belief of love because there's no boundaries on it. But as soon as we have a belief that wants to impart or hurt somebody else, or then then we're not at one with love. So we're not at one with God. Right. Yeah. Beautiful. Or the universe or universal wisdom or whatever word you want to use. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. Here at Pro Audio Voices, we love working with authors who have a big goal in mind. They really want to reach out to their audience around the world. We're here to help make that happen. It starts with our pre-production process. 
where we're evaluating and determining what elements of the audiobook we can leverage to both create an excellent listener experience for your listeners, as well as drawing them to your website to engage with you further. It continues on through the production process, making decisions that will enhance and support your big goals, as well as creating a great listener experience. But we don't stop there. Once the audiobook is live, we move on to helping you market your audiobook with the Audiobook Marketing Program. Come check us out at ProAudioVoices.com. To schedule a call to talk about your audiobook project, click on Get Started. Through the Dare to Be Love platform and through marketing your book, you must have met and interacted with a lot of people. What is something that you've learned mm-hmm. about human nature through that experience? Well, probably the most important thing for me is that everyone's a mirror to me, even when I don't like them, or particularly <laughs> when I don't like them. <laughs> and so talking about this material has been such a challenge for me because I have, if I want to, I don't have to do anything. If I want to talk about this material, then for me, it's important that I continue to access the courage to look at what I, how I'm bringing it forth in my behaviors, in my words, and in my thoughts. And I, and sometimes I can sit there saying to someone, you, you know, and I'm looking at them and I'm nodding my head like this and I'm thinking, you're boring me, you're boring me, you're boring me. I disagree with you. I disagree with you. I disagree with you. <laughs> I've, I've met people who immediately the message resonates with because their spirits mm-hmm. are so open. And, they, and they're deeply curious about the content and they're deeply curious about what this means and want to, wants to, sh- want to share the message from their own perspective because it always is from our own perspective. And, and I've met people who are, are very unkind and it, all of them are teachers mm. to me. So that's probably the most amazing thing is to humble myself and realize that every human being in front of me is a teacher and in that moment finding the courage to be student and surrender to love. That is a real lesson right there, I think, you know, for us all to mm-hmm. to hold to is looking at everything, especially those challenging ones that we want to dismiss <laughs> or reject, you know, but being able to accept yeah. them with compassion and to step into the possibility of them being, that being a teaching moment or a teaching experience. Mm-hmm. Someone, yeah, yeah, beautiful. For me, yes. Yeah. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit more about sort of that full journey of writing Life's Not Yoga? Mm-hmm. When did you start? What inspired sharing this vulnerable story? I started writing actually in my teens. I felt strongly about, I had this desire, this craving, this thing inside of me, and I shut that down. And then over the years, I would always, and I still do that every day, I'll pick up a, my phone and I'll record a note. I used to have a dictaphone where I write something down. But in 2002, it just things were changing in my life. I I'd had a terrible bout of chronic fatigue. And in that experience of going back to some Eastern modalities, I've always been involved somehow with Eastern philosophies, whether it be judo or karate or tai chi. And I was doing a lot of tai chi at that time. And I was opening up my chakras, I think, and I was looking and questioning again. I was questioning a lot of my thought processes, questioning a lot of why I was doing what I was doing. Also because I had a great therapist at that stage and a great doctor who was helping me realize that my chronic fatigue and my chronic fibromyalgia that I was having was coming from 
the unexplained. And I wanted an explanation. I wanted a pull and they couldn't give me one. And it was actually in 2002 that I approached my father to say that I was going to write the book. And I wanted to let him know that part of me writing was to share the secret that we were carrying, the secret shame that we had. And what was hard for me was sharing that with him. And, you know, in the book, I share his view on that. And it, it was an unfolding of layers. And then something happened. You know, my husband literally had an emotional breakdown and a, a nasty court case that ensued with one of the world's leading uh, accounting firms and, and being bullied again and threatened again and wanting to protect the person I loved the most sort of brought up all of this anger again for me. And then I started writing that book because I wanted justice. I wanted them to suffer. And the idea of wanting my father to suffer and wanting this big corporate to suffer is how this story unfolded where I, I kept going deeper and deeper, not understanding the pain that I was suffering, I then started having, you know, literally seizures with debilitating migraines that had me in and out of hospital. And all of this was as a result of my own internal pain. And how did I manifest and cure myself from all of these things was unpacking my stories. And part of it was writing. I first had to write that that first book, you know, which I talk about in the book is I had to get out my ugly. I had to look at it and go, whoa, this is not a good book. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very angry book Jackie. <laughs> as I did with Amanda last night I sent her something I wanted to say to someone she said sister not cool <laughs> but I had the courage to take my untethered messy self out of me not react to it as Frankl says it's the moment of choice and put it in front of someone who I trust and respect to hold my mess for me and so my book went through these transitions to telling the story as it is now yeah so your writing really was a big part of your healing journey, it sounds like. Very much so. Yeah. And it's why yeah. I still write when I, even when I want to say something, when I'm upset or angry with someone, because I'm human, I have all of those things. Yeah. My mother used to say to me, how do you do it? I said, mommy, I still have a lot of chaos in you. <laughs> she said, you're so calm these days. I said, mm, you're not sitting inside the bed going, breathe, breathe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I, and I still yeah. get it wrong. Mm. But it was very much a part of my healing process. And also my mother reading the book and sharing with me her view on it was very, very powerful for me. Yeah. I've also had uh, experiences where writing was very, very healing, very mm. deliberate part of healing process. So I, mm. I definitely uh, feel that. Thank you. And what would you say, what do you feel your your purpose is? And how do you feel you're living through that? You know, Becky, considering the fact that, you know, we catch up in a physical world, I believed at 16 when I had that first healing that my, my purpose was to share that and what it means to fully heal from a physical ailment. So whether we look at the work of, you know, A Course in Miracles, Brandon Bays, The Journey, all of these people who have spoken to, and there are hundreds of people out there who have manifested a miracle, a physical miracle. I don't doubt anymore the importance of sharing my journey and the healing process and another way of being able to do it by helping people sit with their deep questions. I'm not going to ever profess that I can heal anyone. I can only share with them some of the how that I did it and how hard it was for me and the courage that it takes to really go and look at those deep-rooted questions if you want to ma manifest the miracle in the physical, to change your thoughts, words, and deeds, and to help them find the courage to go to the, the root of their belief systems and look where it came from 
to bring about change in their life. I believe from every part of my being, that my spirit and what's been fed to me, I, you know, sometimes I feel like Esther Hicks. I don't know if you know Esther Hicks, Abraham speaks to I her. Do. Yeah, it's what happens to me is this message comes and it, some days it's hard because of the physical impact of, of my position at the moment. And then when I sit down and yesterday my partner came and I looked at him and I said, I really think I'm the luckiest person in the world that I get to do this work. Um, and so whenever I'm in the work and I'm in the present moment, there's there's no doubt in my mind. And as I sit with you this moment, there's a bit of shyness me talking about it, trying to earn it still, but there's also this excitement that, as Jung says, you know, universal, universal wisdom is available to all of us. I'm grateful that my trauma brought me to the place where I had to be silent to listen to it. Beautiful. Just yeah. beautiful. Thank you. I want to ask you just a couple more questions mm -hmm. about the audiobook process. Mm -hmm. I remember when, actually, this is maybe more about the writing, but I remember when I first looked at your manuscript before we were, you know, when we were just figuring things out and reading those first paragraphs about you know, how growing up in white, small-town mm -hmm. apartheid in South Africa was nice. And <laughs> I remember at that moment, I, I felt startled, you know, that made me a little nervous. Uh, you know, sort of, there was an edge. I was like, where are we going? Where are we going with this, you know? And, and then, of course, you know, continuing on and, and you know, really getting into the, the meat of the story or, you know, of learning more about your journey. Can you tell us about how you chose to approach the start of the story. Whew, sure, there's many layers to that. So I talk about that this is my, you know, I had manuscripts before this and my manuscript at times were, was, you know, where I am in the mountains at 45, looking back at my past or sharing some of my past, my, my childhood, and then going into, you know, where I fast forward into current day. That wasn't easy, and I and I seeked opinion from many many people. One of the things that you know everybody said, whether you like it or not, that first paragraph will either make people continue to read or stop reading. And my book triggers everyone. I haven't had a person that I know of from readers that haven't said to me, "Wow, this book was triggering." At times, I've had people who love part one, hated part two, love part two, hated part one. You can't influence how the reader is going to experience it. But what we did do is we worked through that first page and that first paragraph. If I rewrote the manuscript a hundred times, probably that paragraph a thousand times. I'm sure I'm exaggerating. <laughs> but yes, it, it is triggering. And, you know, that's, you know, it is very early on. It actually says, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s in South Africa. And it's setting for the reader the, the fact of what we only know what we're surrounded by. And so if you're not going to open your mind in the first chapter to that, then, you you know, in the first paragraph to that or the first part of that, then how do we even look at our current world today? Then my question is the courage to go deeper because I think people who really resonate with my book see the book as the mirror. And before you get to read that chapter, there's a poem, My Imperfections Are My Beauty Spots, A Long Life's Mirrored Wall. I share their scars externally so you can see them all. My shame, my guilt, my blame, my doubt. My inner critic's plea, the freedom from their sight and sound. Projection's gift to be. I know now that your mirror's truth reflects the perfect me. Uncomplicated for its grace, my heart gives thanks to thee. 
So you have that poem before you read that first paragraph. And I, if you carry that poem in your heart, it's why someone like you could notice what it brought up for you and keep reading. It's the wisdom, the courage to notice. This is how it makes me feel. What's behind this? And so people who see the mirror of themselves in the book are the people who are enjoying the book and talking about the book and sharing the book with others. Uh, thank you for sharing that poem just now. Mm -hmm. It actually relates to my... So I want to ask you a little bit about the poems. And I know during the production of the audiobook, we <laughs> did a little bit of back and forth about the poems and who would read them. Would Sierra read them? Would you read them? Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with that? As a child, I didn't like to get up and read in front of a class. I can get up and you can interview me and I'll talk. I can get up and give me a topic and I'll be able to talk too long. <laughs> I'm a talker. Don't ask me to read anything. So what happened is when I went into the studio and listened to myself reading these poems, you might love the experience hearing me doing it, but I don't. And also just, you know, in terms of looking at the parts that I read and looking at the parts that Sierra read, I just felt the flow was right that she read the poems. I did read them and then I listened to her reading them. And, you know, I actually, it was the most amazing experience. I sat with one or two people and I asked them to listen to it. And then I sat with my partner and he said to me, why are you reading the poems? I said, well, I don't know. I don't think I should. He says, well, I don't think you should either. So I said, let's unpack that. And we spoke about it. And the first recordings I did in studio and he listened to them and I said, I also think I can do better. He said, you can. And it was so amazing by him sharing his view with me how I, and I, I think if I went back to studio now, sure, I could do a better job, but I don't have four years or however long it took for someone to go and, and learn the things and study the things that you and Sarah have studied in terms of voice control and acting. So yeah. Um, yeah. hats off to her. I'm very honored that, that I gave it to her and I'm very pleased that I did. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's mm. valuable. So I just want to say again, thank you so much for being with me today. This is Jackie Burnett, author of the memoir, Life's Not Yoga, or Is It? Thanks again for being with me. Becky, and I'd like to just say, you know, for those that are listening out there, it's been such an incredible experience working with a company where I felt so safe because this was, you know, tricky material as well as, you know, having someone like Sierra on the team as, as the person who's done the reading. And just knowing that anyone out there that's wanting to, to do an audiobook, have the courage to look beyond your own voice, work with Pro Audio. I did interview with other companies, and I'm sure I would have had an amazing experience, but certainly on every single level I have felt supported. On every single level, the professionalism has just been amazing. And... Even one day I, I had a, I was in the middle of a complete emotional meltdown because I hadn't slept. Just how loving and kind your entire team was on that Zoom call. What an honor and a privilege to work with, with your company. And thank you for being the amazing human being that you are and, and the work that you do. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Thanks for joining us for Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. Please take a moment to subscribe at audiobookconnection.com. The podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Learn more at proaudiovoices.com. Again, thanks for being with us, and please join us next week.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.